So Acts 1 and beginning at verse 12. So remember last week that Jesus had uh, addressed the, the, the apostles and, and then ascended. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up and one of the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels pushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldame, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there not be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Amen. Well, I said to you, last time uh, about Luke being a really uh, highly regarded historian and I should add that the book of Acts itself is highly regarded. Now you might say well among Christians why is that a surprise? We believe it's the word of God not just an ordinary book. But what I mean is that even among historians who are not believers, who are not Christians, they look at this book and they esteem it very highly. They say that the book of Acts bears all the hallmarks of something very reliable. It's a very early book, written close to the, you know, very, very close to the events that, that took place. But there are other markers, too many to go into today. But um, when you read the scriptures, you can look out for things like the, there's the principle of embarrassment, which sounds a strange thing to say, the principle of embarrassment. 
It means that it, it counts in favour for the authenticity of a book if it contains embarrassing facts. Can you imagine the early church? They're writing up these Gospels, and one of the Gospel writers said uh, Jesus was, was, uh, Jesus was uh, discussing with the disciples uh, the, the, the end of the world, and he said, um, no one knows, not even me, knows the exact timing of this. Now, you think about this, why would someone who believed in the divinity of Christ, a principle which is found, well, all over the place, put this thing in which is all awkward, awkward to, to the Christians? And so you, you could say that that verse is embarrassing almost, because it creates problems. But such was the integrity of the writers of scriptures that they included such details. And if you want to learn more about that principle, um, a guy, uh, a guy Derek's aware of, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, writes uh, a lot about these principles, how we can gauge uh, how authentic a book is. So I'm, I'm saying this because we can, we can rely quite heavily really on this. The book of Acts is highly regarded Never mind that it was inspired by God, it's regarded as a secular, if you like, historical document. It's, it stands in that way as well. But, yeah, we believe it's inspired. And for all these reasons, we're going to pay close attention to Acts, and we're going to observe what the very, very early church did, how they behaved, and see what we can learn. And so today, we have some very basic principles uh, to draw uh, from this little section I've just read. So before, uh, before I mention them, some, some notes, if you like, some comments about that, that passage in general. Now, in the, you'll find in the older Bibles, like the King James, you find that it's structured uh, as, as almost like a continual block of writing, and so sometimes it's, it's not as easy to see where they are quoting and so on. And of course, later Bibles use speech marks to help us identify where there was a quote and uh, maybe even set the quotes apart. And so in my, in my Bible here, we have a first chunk, which is all about Judas, if you like. And, and then there's the, these two little verses which break it up. And then there's the second lot, which is the vote that they had. They had a vote. Judas Iscariot, of course, had betrayed Jesus. And he'd, uh, he'd died. He, he killed himself. He'd um, not, not sure how. They think maybe he tried to hang himself and he, uh, he just decomposed and <laughs> everything fell out. Or the rope snapped and he hit the floor and everything poured out. It doesn't matter. Uh, the guy topped himself, that's the point, and they needed a replacement. And so what you have is the first section, and that first quote from the Old Testament, may his camp become desolate, and so on. So that's the sort of explanation for what has gone before about Judas. And then the second quote, the second scripture, let another take his office. That leads in then to the second part, uh, which is the vote for his replacement. We notice that, uh, I thought I'd mention this, that uh, Peter, 
He talks about Judas's uh, betrayal being a fulfillment of scripture. So it's almost like you can imagine someone saying, well, how is this Judas's fault? You know, it was in the scriptures, it was prophesied, it was predestined to take place, his act of betrayal. But the scriptures are very clear that even although these events are predestined by God, ordained by God, so that they will necessarily take place, that does not absolve the sinner from his actions, from the guilt of his actions. And so we have these two things. Judas was predestined to betray Jesus, but Judas is still guilty because it still counts as is his own actions done um, with, in full knowledge of what he was doing. And so we will see that throughout the scriptures, that issue come up time and time again. The point is for us that we can't argue that, oh well, if God arranges everything, then I'm not responsible for my sin. Bible tells us that, that both things are true. So we need to own our sins. I've also thought it was worth mentioning that this replacement, if you think about this replacement of, of Judas, there's two Judases, okay? So don't be confused. There's a, there's a good guy, Judas, and then there's Judas Iscariot. He was the traitor. But when he was replaced by Matthias, you know, we're not to think about this idea of succession. So some people say that, um, you know, the original apostles, there was this natural succession right down the years, even up to the present day, uh, which is which balmy, just, uh, but um, you can see here that this wasn't a natural uh, continuity from one faithful apostle who died. This was a traitor. This was a replacement of a traitor. I just thought I would mention that the idea of this um, succession of apostles, apostolic succession, uh, is false. And it, um, for the same reason we reject the Church of Rome's claim that the popes are uh, successors of St. Peter. In this vote, you'll notice there was a requirement in the, in the choice of person to replace Judas. They had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry from the moment Jesus was uh, baptised by John right the way through to his ascension. The, the person had to have that uh, experience. He had to be an eyewitness. He had to have seen the resurrection and the ascension as well. And it says that what it's saying to us is that there's this... Uh, there's this continuity of eyewitness testimony. And so why that's important is, you know, this is the church's very foundational moments. The New Testament church's foundational moments. And we can see the priority made to eyewitness testimony. The foundation of the church, the foundation of our fellowship today is eyewitness testimony of a group of just normal individuals 2,000 years ago, who uh, were prepared to die rather than deny what they had seen. We can trust the early church's message uh, in other words. It's not just opinion, it is a matter of divine actions being witnessed, being historical facts and being uh, recorded for us. 
you may uh, you may be aware of this. This is a, this is from uh, Revelation. This it's about the apostles in Revelation twenty one and verse fourteen. If you want to take a note of that, it says. Now, this is describing a city. Now, we are not getting into that today, but the, the, the church of God is described as a city. And so each part of the city speaks in some way about the nature of the church of God. Now, here it says, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Okay, 12 foundation stones of this massive city. City the size of, I don't know, North America or something and reaching up into the stratosphere, this giant city, it's just a symbol. And it says the wall of the city has 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Were these people picked because they were better than us? No, they were just normal people. Half of them didn't know really what was going on. But they were chosen by God and he made them, um, he made them vessels for uh, communicating the kingdom message and so it is that simple but faithful foundation which is the foundation for the church today and so because of this vote we have then a restored leadership back to the way it should be with that special number 12 uh, and a restored leadership so that I, said, I said that i was going to highlight just a few things from this today in the time we have before our breaking of bread, I wanted to mention three things. I wanted to look at the behaviour of these people, and in particular three aspects of it. I want to show that they were a people of prayer, that they were people of the Bible, and they were a people of testimony. Simple as that. So, they were a people of prayer. We saw that in verse 14. It says they all got together and were praying. And so you notice that, well, firstly we notice that it was all of them. It was all of them. So the church came together. There wasn't a, a select group within the congregation, if you like. Who, oh, they're the ones who go to pray. They're the ones who go to prayer meetings. The job of praying together, it's for everyone in the congregation in the local church. Everyone is to come together and pray. It also says that they pray with one accord. That means there was unity in their approach to God. It doesn't mean they agreed on every detail in, in their understanding, but it means that they were, on the whole, on the basics of the gospel, they were in agreement. And so they were able to pray in, in, in a, a consistent, a united way. It mentions the word devotion which is important, they were devoted to this. So you, you might otherwise think that prayer is something that is now and again is okay. You know, stick it in once a week, or you know, that's the wrong way of thinking about prayer. It, it is a devotion, it is something that the Christian is to be committed to. Prayer, this is, uh, I, I wouldn't lay down any rules for anyone about when you should pray or how often, but certainly it, it is to be something that happens a, a lot in the life of the, of the believer. And you'll notice too, it mentions the women. The women as well. This was a turning point now because 
the, the, all those things women were not allowed to do. Even in the temple, they were separated. This was the temple. Well, all the blokes would come in, all the women would be out in the hall. That's what the temple was like. And this new church, uh, women were at the very heart of Jesus' ministry. And now with the early church, women are there in the prayer meeting, praying with the men. Uh, and I thought it was quite, well, heartwarming really to notice that apart from this being a real strong inspiration to us for prayer, uh, we see that Jesus' own mother was in the prayer meeting. She, she joined in. She hadn't walked away from it all. She'd seen her boy killed on a cross. She'd gone through that pain. She'd been stabbed in the heart. And she somehow, with the strength of God, she recovered from that. And she immersed herself back in the life of the church. What a, what a great woman. Mightily used by God she was. It's also interesting about prayer that Jesus hadn't instructed them to go and pray. That's interesting. Jesus had said, wait, that's all. Go to Jerusalem and just wait for this thing to happen, this event, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Their prayer was, well, it was spontaneous. They automatically just prayed. You see in verse 24 as well, it says, uh, you know, Peter says, you, Lord, you know, he, he addresses God. He, he, he tells God something great about himself. He says, about God, he says, um, God, you know the hearts of, of all men. And then he makes his request. So that's a nice order, isn't it? What we want comes at the end. And he makes his request and, he, and God gave him what he wanted. For the Christian, prayer is something that should come naturally to us now that there's opposition within your hearts to pray okay so that there's a part of our makeup that hates prayer that detests prayer that wants to do anything but pray there is always that sitting within us something that we're not going to shed this side of glory so there is however another principle within us and this new creature and this new creature, this new person, this born-again individual, loves to pray. And when the believer is left to their own devices, they can't help themselves from praying. There's this urge to, to thank God. There's so many things to thank God for. And the Christian can't wait to go and thank God for all those things. And they can't wait also. To, to, to ask God for things. Think about the situations we find ourselves in, all those problems we come across in life. And it's so fantastic for the believer to be able to go to God and tell him every one of them and know that he is on the job, that he is working in some way uh, with what we've asked. Well, my dear, second point then is that these were people of the Bible people of the Bible as well as prayer. You'll find it in verse 16. It references, uh, the, Peter references the, the scriptures. He referenced the scriptures and he also mentioned the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit wrote. 
So the scriptures describe something that's our written, but he ascribes the content to the Holy Spirit. He, he says that the content came from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 as well, you'll see there, he says, it is written, uh, a famous little, famous little phrase that Jesus himself used. It is written, it's showing their confidence in the scriptures, their trust in the scriptures. Now they, we see in the New Testament a heavy reliance on Old Testament scripture. Now, the book of Revelation is saturated with Old Testament references, and the church employed the Old Testament scriptures as a way to express their faith in Christ. They used that language to, 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 to sort of express how they felt uh, and their faith. Now, you might wonder why Peter is sort of stealing some verses that don't appear to have anything to do with Judas or anyone else. And that's because the scriptures had an immediate um, uh, fulfillment, if you like. So when we go back, uh, we might find a scripture about uh, an event back then, a thousand years before Christ. And it was, it was meant to be understood in that way. But all those scriptures, which meant something back then, it's almost like those scriptures were waiting, waiting for the day when the New Testament church would come along, Jesus would come along and show how so many of those scriptures had their higher fulfillment in Christ and in the gospel. And that's what's happening here. Those two scriptures Peter quoted, when we go back to them, we can it's not at all obvious that they had anything to do with Jesus. He didn't steal them. Peter, under the inspiration of God, merely showed where they pointed to ultimately. And so he quite rightly uses those uh, scriptures. You'll see next week how he quotes from um, Joel, uh, which we've mentioned before. So just to be clear then, David in the Psalms did not mention Judas Iscariot by name. But because of the way the Psalms are written, they're written about kings and, and, and issues like that, and the Messiah obviously is the ultimate king. In the Psalms, the enemies of the uh, the enemies of the king, well, they are really the, also the enemies of the Messiah, and so this is why we, we this is why we say that Peter was quite right in quoting these things. And I, I would only say, in addition to that, that in the fulfilment of these things, we're not to, we're not to uh, listen to those people who suggest that the, the fulfilment of scriptures was all about conspiracies. You know, there was a, you know, a conspiracy between the Jews and the Romans and everyone else to fake the, the resurrection of Christ from the grave. We've heard all that before. Do we need to spend any time on any of that nonsense? Uh, obviously, these are not conspiracies what Judas did with Jesus 
helping the Romans and killing Jesus was not some kind of um, conspiracy to fulfill prophecy. It wasn't. It was there by the ordination of God most certainly. Well, I've mentioned uh, they, they were a people of prayer and a people of the Bible. And as I said, we would also identify them as a people of testimony. Testimony. Uh, verse 22 uses the word witness. It's the same thing, isn't it? When you're in court. Okay, not everyone here has been in court. But if you had been, you'd be standing in the dock and you would, um, you would be a witness. And you would give uh, your testimony, your version of what you say has happened. And people will uh, uh, evaluate your witness. You might remember last week that Jesus gave this direction, did he not? He gave uh, one last direction to them. Now, he expected them to pray, but, but that wasn't it. He, he chose as his last instruction to the apostles that they should be witnesses. I suspect to the modern Christian, they might wonder why, why Jesus overemphasized this one tiny aspect of the Christian life. Why didn't Jesus mention worship, singing, uh, all these other actions of the church, you know, whatever it might be? The answer should be self-evident. Jesus was not overemphasizing anything at all. Jesus was telling the disciples what their chief role was. Their chief role was to be witnesses. So I, I suspect if we find that unusual, I suspect it's because we've got it wrong. We, we are used to having this church life where uh, evangelism is one small element of it. And for, for a lot of people, that's optional anyway, for whatever reason, but it's not. Now, if we take uh, that instruction of Jesus, uh, we, we, we're not in the same position as the apostles, but certainly, well, surely, uh, we can take something from that. We can be challenged by this. This witness as well, women were involved again. Women were there as well. Out of the prayer meeting, Witnessing to people, and so we, we see we see don't we that there's this uh, in the New Testament church there's this brand new equality of esteem among men and women and owners and slaves and all this. There's a new equality of esteem. It was never meant to overturn all the different roles in the church in God's kingdom. There are still things which I'm not allowed to do in the church. I'm not allowed to have a ministry to the widows and, and that sort of support for, for young married women. That's not, that's, I'm not, I'm not, uh, that's not for me. Um, and for the women in the church, the, the, the preaching is not for them. It's just hard lines that they can't do it. And so what I mean is those roles may have been maintained, but that's nothing to do with equality. It's just different jobs. There is now an equality and between races, genders, uh, social classes and everything really. So really, the, what we're to take from this is that we are to be people of testimony, so we share. 
I don't mean necessarily on the street. I don't mean necessarily through distributing newspapers. It could be any number of things, as I've, as I've mentioned before. But certainly we should all try to find a way to, to be involved. I'll mention as well that they were to be witnesses to what? They were to be witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Again, why? Why pick on this one thing? I mean, resurrection. Well, the resurrection was necessary. But if God had not elected people from the dawn of time, resurrection by itself would be no good. If Jesus had not come into the world as a man, the resurrection is worthless. It, all these things are a part of a process. But again, Jesus picked out this thing that the, the apostles singled out this important thing, witnesses to his resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? Well, uh, let me read some verses from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. And Paul explains why it's so important. So in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it's quite a long passage, but so I'll just have to read a few verses, starting at verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's pointless. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, who he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Wow, I'll leave that there. Now, very powerful stuff from Paul. So, on the one hand, the emphasis about the resurrection is to do with Jesus' resurrection. It means that we need to understand that God has the power to take a person who's dead and make them alive again. We need to understand that. If we say, well, look, I've never seen such a thing. It's never happened in the past thousand years. I haven't heard of people being raised from the dead. So I don't believe it. Okay, well, if you don't believe it, then Christ, who was a man, he wasn't raised either. And if Christ wasn't raised, you take that resurrection piece out of the process, it all collapses. The whole, the whole issue of salvation just collapses into the rubble. And none of us are saved. We're wasting our time. We may as well go, go home and watch the, the telly instead. That's, that's Paul's... Paul's message. We need to understand that God has the power to raise the dead. And if we believe that, we can believe he raised Jesus from the dead, and we do have hope. The second aspect of the resurrection, the mention of that there is what follows from that. The re one of the main purposes of Christ's resurrection was to show how the believer will also be resurrected to eternal life. So that is going to be repeated millions of times over. 
that's why it's important because well you know this is what we look forward to now i know if i took a survey of christians this is how this is how it's gone this is how it's this is where we are today if i took a survey of all the christians on the planet and said what's your goal what's your what do you hope to attain to what's the you know what's the big thing you hope for in the future a tiny minority would say what it says in the scriptures a tiny minority would say my hope is for the resurrection which is what paul said and you might say well, well i was going to say heaven and that's the same thing it's not there's a difference now, you might argue that those things can be used uh, synonymously but there is a difference and we need to be careful with our use language so our hope is for the resurrection and all our hope is based on the fact that God had the power to raise his son from the dead. So folks, our time is up. I will just say this, that we too are to be a people of prayer. If we hope for any sort of revival in our hearts and in the church and success in our endeavours to reach people, then we need to be a people of prayer, persistent prayer. We need to keep hammering the door of heaven and uh, until God gives us our answer. We must be people of the Bible too. We must have the same confidence in the scriptures as Christ had and the apostles had. It's sad to think that there are unbelievers in this world who have more confidence in the scriptures than Christians do. Isn't that a horrific thought? We, we are not like that, are we? We, are, we have faith in the scriptures. And then finally, we are to be a people who have a testimony and we must follow Jesus' command and the example of the New Testament church and be people who devote their lives to sharing their faith. Amen.